Geography and geospatial thinking touches on all aspects of our lives. From energy to elections, from floods to foods, teaching spatial thinking is paramount to the success of the human experiment. My guest today is one such thinker, an educator and lifelong student of geography. Dr. Joseph Kursky is the education manager for Esri. He holds three degrees in geography and has served 22 years for leading national agencies, including NOAA, USGS, and the Census Bureau. Our discussion covered geographic education with artificial intelligence, critical thinking and ethics in geography, and a deep dive into inspirational figures and events that have shaped spatial thinking forever. My goal with this podcast is to provide free access to the intelligence within the minds of great thinkers and doers. And I'm sharing my access to the great people in these communities with you to think, learn, and grow from. Please rate and review this podcast and subscribe on YouTube. It's free and enables us to continue to produce high quality content for your enjoyment. Make sure you check out the links in the description and enjoy Dr. Joseph Kursky. Joseph Kursky. Maybe you could give us an introduction to how you became the education manager. Oh, well, greetings, Nick, and greetings all. Joseph here, and I'm I'm happy to chat about that because it's been a really interesting journey and hopefully encouraging people listening to this in in a couple ways that I'll explain. But I've had a very blessed variety of experiences in the geospatial, spatial thinking, geography world – I'm at Esri, as you indicated. I'm on the education team, so it's it's really focused on helping schools, libraries, museums, community, technical, and tribal colleges and universities be successful with spatial thinking and geotechnologies. It is completely supporting their good work in teaching, in research, and also in campus facilities, campus administration, campus safety, lighting, electricity, and so on, managing the campus. I'm mostly focused on the teaching and research side, helping educators use GIS in Mm -hmm. a variety of different disciplines that we can chat about. But the way I got here was I have had a past in nonprofit organizations. So I was president of the National Council for Geographic Education. I love nonprofits. I'm active in other nonprofits, Mm -hmm. AAG and others. I've also spent a lot of years in Federal agencies, science and mapping agencies, NOAA, Census Bureau, U.S. Geological Survey, and I also am in academia. So I teach part-time as an adjunct in several different community colleges and universities. That helps me in my ESRI role as well, and I love working with students. So that's the four sectors of society that I've been involved with. Well, cool. I mean, as the education manager, there's probably um, some interesting things going on in terms of the way technology is exploding right now. I was wondering if maybe um, you can kind of give me your philosophy on education and the current uh, the current trends of you know large scale language models and these other awesome AI tools kind of taking over what I what I call are the hard skills right the hard skills I think are going to be uh, run by AI um, and it'll be up to people to be creative and curious. Uh, to, to put those things together. Like, but what, what's your philosophy on educating in that? Well, great question, Nick. I have always advocated several different but core key tenets in education. First of all, it's not about the tools. 
The tools are important, and the, the tools enable us to make smarter, wiser, more sustainable decisions. But the tools evolve, as you're indicating right now. They are rapidly evolving, ever more rapidly evolving in the future, as you're hinting at. This tool right here, I'm pointing at my head. I know this is a podcast, so people can actually see this, but I'm pointing at my head. This tool right here, your brain, is the most <laughs> important tool of all, your spatially thinking, critical thinking brain. So I encourage students of all ages and faculty and researchers and others to keep nurturing that tool primarily. Your brain, as you're also indicating, your, the human element is still going to be important in wise decision-making. Yes, mm -hmm. we'll have ever more wonderful data sets and geospatial tools at our fingertips, but that spatial thinking brain of yours is the most important. Also, another tenet that I've long advocated is be critical of the data. Understand what data goes into the models that you're using, the tools that you're using, and what scale was it created at? Who created it? Why was it created? How often is it updated? And as, again, you're hinting at, as we go into this big data uh, world, uh, AI-enabled tools, it's even more important than ever before that you understand right. what goes into that. And in part because you're not going to be in the future using very much of the standard workflows perhaps of the past where you've got your own small data set and you've got your model that you're running on that and you come up with solutions. So those will still be important to be sure. But increasingly, it's going to be, I've got to figure out how to make the, right. the Texas electrical grid sustainable in the event of a future freeze, right? And I'm not going to be just loading a couple of right. electric lines. I'm going to have millions of customers and thousands of lines and thousands of switch boxes and transforming uh, stations. So I'm going to use a, a probably a model that's AI enabled that probably someone else created, but I need to understand what's in that model. So those are a couple of the things that I've long advocated. Right. But you know, last one here is as we as we kind of move forward, you're 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 hinting at another key thing, and that is the transformation of education. Now, education has always been evolving to be relevant and timely and meeting students' needs and meeting societal needs and so on. So no surprise. But uh, in the last three years, many faculty have been forced right to adopt a hybrid model or to teach online. I've I've been teaching online for twenty years, and mm -hmm. I love it. Um, you know, there's so many tools and data sets available online. Right. But some faculty, and it wasn't their fault. They just never had to teach online before the year 2020, and suddenly they were forced to. And so, teaching mm -hmm. something like geotechnologies, which is rapidly evolving and high tech inherently and complex. Now they had to, in addition to that, engage students in the online or hybrid environment. So for many, that was a very challenging time. But you know, faculty are very innovative and um, creative, and so they did it. Um, some of them still prefer to teach face-to-face, -face, and I get that right. as well. I love teaching face-to-face -face as well as teaching online. But anyway, there's there's been lots of that going on, that whole change. And then the last change, of course, is that – as we move forward, there's the demographic changes in in society, and there's also societal expectations for education is changing. You know, should I get? Do I really need that traditional degree? Do I need a micro credential? Mm -hmm. Do I need a certificate? Do I do I need it just a few classes? And so, education is trying to respond to all those changes as well. Uh, in in the geographic information system space, there there are 
you know, legit degrees mm-hmm. that you can get in GIS. Uh, but it's also one of those things where, you know, a really skilled technician that just understands the tools could really do, <laughs> really do some great stuff. What are your thoughts on that? Um, that kind of balance between a formal education or just being a master of the tools, you know, I guess, and I guess, I guess you're going to say both. Indeed. But, it- <laughs> but, but my, my, my question is, you know, you mentioned there's a lot of free stuff out there, you know, you could go to school for four years or if you could t- take some of these, um, courses that are online that are free or, uh, watch a million YouTube videos, which is what a lot of people are doing for their own education these days, you know, is, is traditional education really the right thing for such a technical Well, there's a couple of thoughts I have on that. Yes, I think it's good that we have this conversation, and this is by no means the end-all final word on this. I'd love to have your uh, listeners. Oh, gosh, the pressure's on, Nick. This is it right here today. Love to have a conversation (laughs) with folks. They know how to get a hold hold of me based on the resources that you're attaching to this podcast, and I'd love to have this because we need to have this conversation because we're still inventing it as we go. Uh, we're inventing this whole geospatial education. You know, when you think right. about it, um, um, geospatial technology has been around since what 1965. Uh, Tomlinson, the Canadian land inventory. So we're only in the 60th year-ish of geospatial, and in education, even newer than that. Right? Universities really didn't fully embrace GIS until right around 19, late 1980s, early 1990s, when you started to see those early textbooks mm-hmm. and so on. I think. Well, there's several things that are important here. Uh, number one. Um, it depends on what the person wants to do and where they see themselves working. Sure, in in my own role, for example, it was actually worthwhile for me to spend the time and money to get that advanced degrees, uh, master's, bachelor's, you know, PhD, because I wanted to work in education. And so I wanted to be mm-hmm. on educational advisory boards and NSF panels and things like that. So actually having those additional letters would help me. If I would have gone into just you know non-educational space in geotechnology, which is where I was actually at the Census Bureau and, and USGS for many years before I got kind of got into the uh, educational focus of my career. But when I was making data, working with local stakeholders, uh, et cetera, building tiger and digital line graphs and digital ortho photos and, and all those other kinds of core data sets, national mm-hmm. hydro data set. I think that the, uh, the bachelor's and, and perhaps the master's would have been sufficient. And then in addition to that, uh, additional maybe certification credentials of various kinds, uh, micro credentials and stuff. So it really depends on where a person listening to this is feeling that they, they want to um, have the most positive impact and where they see their role is. Certainly, as you're as you're touching on, there are many ways to get to, to nurture that whole lifelong learning, which is what we're all encouraging the community to do, right, Nick, is be a lifelong learner. There's never going to be, even when you get your mm-hmm. whatever degree it is or credential, you're not going to stop learning. You can't stop learning in this space. So that all being said, universities are trying to figure out, and college technical tribal and community colleges as well have a key role here, how, how should they position themselves? It's definitely no longer just the degree, for sure. And it hasn't been for quite some time. Um, right. And as you're also touching on, now that we've got online learning tools, hey, I can be in my you know home office in Colorado, and I can take the Penn State, which I have a lot of respect for, and other programs online. 
I can enroll in those programs. I can right. also go to a bootcamp GIS and take a series of courses and get a, a certification there. And I can also take SRE MOOCs, massive open online courses, and, and I love those. And I encourage people to do those as well. I can, I can take learn.arcgis.com modules and the training at SRE and other organizations. Those are all good things. Um, obviously, you, you've got a regular job to do. And so you've got to balance out, hey, how much time I'm going to spend learning, actual purposeful learning rather than just learning on the job versus getting what my supervisor is asking me to do today or this week or you know my team goals this month or my organization's goals this year. I've got to do those mm-hmm, too. Mm-hmm. So how do I... Uh, navigate the waters where I'm spending time purposefully learning and walling off. And maybe this is another conversation, walling off my regular duties so I can say, I've got to be immersed in this, for example, this MOOC for three hours. I can't just sort of dip into it for five or 10 minutes, right? That's just not conducive to learning this. So how do I mm-hmm. position myself? What's the, what's the work learning balance, if you will, to do that? But um, yes, you're exactly right. There is a uh, I think a very uh, volatile, changing environment that we're in in education. And, you know, since I do visit about 40 campuses a year face to face and in online webinars for probably hundreds mm-hmm. more every year, some of those, especially regional universities, are really grappling with, you know, how do we maintain not just our geospatial program, but our entire university. How are we going to make sure that it survives? Now, I, you know, being a a positive person, I want all boats to float. I I think there's space for everyone. But the reality Mm -hmm. is you're competing against all these online programs and all these micro-credentials. So one of my pieces of advice for especially those regional, smaller universities is, okay, what can you focus on that's already a strength on your campus? Maybe it's agriculture. Maybe it's meteorology and so connect your geospatial program to maybe it's business or you know some aspect of business like supply chain rather than you directly right. trying to compete with your big state university i don't think you're going to win if you're always going to try to compete with your big some students will always want to go to you know champaign urbana right or or the ohio state they're not going to want to go to western right. kentucky or <laughs> eastern illinois so okay what do you focus on there to it's not going to be large, but it could be very viable and something that someone couldn't get anywhere else. Yeah, so uh, you brought up a good a good uh, question for me anyways. It's, you know, uh, doctors and lawyers, they all have to take recertification exams and things like that. Should there be a expiration date on the PhD? You know, if somebody has a PhD in, you know, geospatial science from 1980, you know, things have changed a bit. Um, you know, sh- should there be some type of re-up on that PhD or is it? Oh, that's hey, an interesting, that's lately? an interesting question. I'd love to get other people's opinions on as well. My opinion is that everybody in geo and viro, geoscience, GI science, they are all extremely mm-hmm. keen on learning as they progress through their careers. So I don't know of anybody in this space. And again, you know, this is, admittedly in in th- these spaces yeah but you know i know a few people with advanced degrees in chemistry and art history and they're too <laughs> they are they're also lifelong learners so i don't i don't know of anybody that's just sort of resting sure. on their past laurels or accomplishments and just kind of coasting along um you know and maybe i'm wor- working in sort of rarefied air where the people i'm working with are are all extremely mm-hmm. innovative and and desiring to partner with others. I mean, I tell people myself, I've been working with 
geospatial. I said this in a community college not too long ago, Nick, and the students' eyes got kind of wide because they realized how old I am. But I worked on Tiger at the Census Bureau, and their eyes were like, oh, you know, I've read about that in textbooks. Joseph worked on the Tiger system at the Census Bureau? Oh, my gosh. So I'm I'm not just – coasting after that. So the point is I've been in this space and I think I'm just one example of many people that are, Hey, we've got to keep innovating. We've got to keep moving this forward because we don't want to just use geospatial technology. We want to actually forge new ground with geo. We want to chart the future of geotechnologies, right, Nick? We want to blaze what it should be, which is of course, to build this more sustainable, equitable, resilient world. We don't want to just say, well, we've got these tools now, occasionally I get people saying, Joseph, you know, ESRI and other organizations, they should just kind of slow down on the development of the tools because there's too much to, to <laughs> learn. Okay. First, we need each other. We, you can't learn it all. Um, and secondly, we can't stop developing it because people want those tools to make smarter decisions about water or public safety, right, or hazards resilience right. or land use or some other aspect in society, right, Nick? So we can't really – say, okay, this year we're only going to develop a subset of tools. No, people are asking for these, and that's why we, that's why the pace of change is so rapid. Um, you mentioned the tools. I'm always just astonished by Esri. I mean, it's just there's so many new tools that come out every year, and, and I'm one of these people that I want to play with yep. all of them, right? I want to go, oh, I wanna, we can use this over here. So um, I'm always fascinated by that, and if you're unfamiliar with Esri, you definitely need to Google ESRI and check out this company. It's they're the world leader in geographic information systems. And if you're listening to this podcast, you probably already know who they are. So that's probably probably a good thing. Um, you mentioned you go out to a lot of campuses uh, all over the place. Uh, do you think there's any gaps in either geospatial, remote sensing, or GIS that things that we're just not teaching? Well, great question. I'm just going to cap the the esri note um for you that one of the things that i i I suspect is happening is you're going to have some listeners of this that are sort of trying to figure out what organization they want to work for and you know we've got eight thousand employees or so and you know we're we're humans and sometimes we get it wrong but i think the focus has always been and that's why we're we got to be large is that we're always trying to listen to what people want. What do you, you know, so for example, the ESRI user conference is called the user conference for a reason, and that it's all about the users. It's not rah rah ESRI. It's mm-hmm. what are you doing that's innovative in this space and tell other people about it. And another thing is, I encourage people to find out where, uh, what their organization stands for. So in our case, one example is the Jack and Laura Dangerman Preserve. It is on the elbow of California. So if, a, if, if one of your listeners goes and scrolls down to the area west of Santa Barbara, they'll see the Jack and Laura Dangerman Preserve. They're our founders of Esri. And that was the biggest donation to the Nature Conservancy ever. It was like $225 million. The point is, it's there's public access, mm-hmm. there's beach, there's trails, but it's not going to be paved. And you can study you know, panthers and condors and, and uh, 300-year-old oak trees. And, and so having them do that, Instead of, you know, jetting around partying, right? You wouldn't want an, an environmental focused organization like right. this to where the CEOs weren't aligned with the mission. You, it's quite the converse. It's they are completely dedicated to giving back to people in the planet. So I just encourage the people to no matter what organization you want to work for, do, do, do your homework and investigate 
what that organization actually stands for and if they're practicing what they're preaching. So back on your question, um, which I think is a really good one, um, that and do you want to rephrase that a little bit? T- tell me more. Tell me more about what you what you want me to focus <laughs> on here. Uh, so I was asking about the you know the fact that you yep. go around to a lot of college campuses, and oh, I was just right. curious if there's any massive gaps in geospatial remote sensing or GIS that well, you're aware of. This is starting to close, but I've always advocated based on you know reading John Pickles' book ground truth from the 1990s. John Pickles is uh, mm-hmm. still an active professor at the at University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And that was the first really set of readings I ever remember about the societal implications of GIS. In other words, it's not just this objective tool, it's not just positivistic tool, but we've got some societal implications. And now, especially with the advent of web-based GIS and uh, the the whole scenario where everybody is a map maker. Everybody can create content now. It's not just the USGS and the Ordnance Survey, the UK and the United Nations Environment Program. Everybody can create map content. And so now there's even more of a emphasis on, ooh, we need to be critical of the data. We need to know who created it, why it was created, how it was created, how often it was updated, et cetera. Because mm-hmm. ArcGIS Online, for example, is an open platform. Anybody can contribute data into it. So the data consumer then needs to know how to be a discerning, critical thinker with regards to data. So I think that and other things related to societal issues, geo-privacy, copyright, and other ethical issues. When you make a map, when you symbolize, when you classify, right? When you when you choose the projection, all these are influencing people's final perception of the issue, the problem, the scenario that you're laying out. So the ethical and um, societal issues involved with mapping and visualizations you know, more generally, I think are being looked at more. I would like, you know, to your point, I would like those to be embedded in all courses, not just, hey, week 15, we're going to talk about ethics in this course. No, let's, there's ways to embed it. And I've actually written about this yeah. as well in, in practical ways throughout courses. And I think that's important. So there's still a little gap there, but I think it's, it's, it's narrowing. Uh, people are starting to be aware of that. Yeah, we need to be teaching this and the, here's why. Uh, I would say also, um, you know, you touched on this in your uh, comments to me uh, leading up to this this podcast, but the part of this is we're inventing it. We're figuring out how to teach it and what to teach it as we go. But AI methods, uh, machine learning, uh, that's another one. Uh, for example, you've got in ArcGIS Online, you've got AI-powered tools, in the Living Atlas. The Living Atlas has a set of like, I want to extract right. buildings or cars or trees from a <laughs> multi-band image. Okay, that's that's an AI-powered um, tool that you can just use now on a set of imagery. Okay, so know what went into that and so on. How do I teach with those tools? I think is important going forward as well. Um, you know, another thing that's narrowing sharply because more and more remote sensing programs are incorporating UAVs, drones, and that sort of thing. And that's always just, that's ever going mm-hmm. to impre- increase in the future. In the past, it was sort of, let's fly this. We've got one or two on campus and let's just fly the campus and use it for promotion of the campus and make cool videos and things like that. But now it's, hey, we've right. got <laughs> a, 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 an empowering tool that we can look at how much energy is lost in different buildings with like a thermal a band of the image or 
uh, let's make yep. a 3D model to build a sort of an interior versus exterior space uh, plan in case there's a natural hazard on our campus next week. What are we going to do? And so that's that's right. a new, fairly new frontier, but closing rapidly because of people really embracing this as part of their uh, remote sensing program in their geotechnology set of offerings. So that's closing, but uh, still a still a little bit of a gap. And I would say just lastly here, there is still an under teaching, if we can make that a verb, of coding and programming. Now, many people in geotechnologies uh, have had mm -hmm. some coding courses, like me. Uh, they've, they've come into this from geography or environmental science or planning, and they've had one or two coding courses. And they do a little bit with Arcade, and they do a little bit with uh, you know uh, some of the web APIs and stuff. But we don't do a lot in it. Um, and we need people that know how to do more than just kind of the basics is what I'm advocating. And also it's backed up by a survey right. that we conducted <laughs> a while back, but I think it's still relevant, where we surveyed new people, people new in the, in the geospatial technology uh, career zone. And we said, hey, what did you not get in your undergraduate or grad school that you wish you would have had more of? And the only thing that was really higher than, you know, statistically higher than the other responses was coding. I didn't get enough coding in my program and I really needed on the job. So uh, in, in for various reasons, right? As especially as we migrate to this fully web-enabled platform, but also as systems integrate, right? We're a metropolitan organization, uh, MPO, Metropolitan Planning Organization, the Council of Governments, etc. Want to integrate different communities, cities, counties, GIS systems into a a system that will talk to each other. I don't know how to do that. And most GIS people don't know how to do that either. We we also need those computer science IT folks that we need them to understand what geotechnology is and what our community cares about. But that but so some of it's going to be filled from the geotechnology GI science side of things. But I think more needs to be filled from the people that really wanted to go into computer science and system engineering. But we want them to know about some of our concerns and our workflows. So that's that's a gap as well. So it's sort of a cross fertilization, right. I guess, if you will, uh, in in universities and community colleges of of computer science and geotech. Okay, uh, you talked a lot there about critical thinking. You talked a lot there about ethics. These are two areas that I think are vitally important. Um, maybe maybe we can tackle critical thinking first. You, you mentioned earlier about. Uh, how understanding the foundation of that data, right? Like, and you even talked a little bit about, you know, this kind of world of open source information and having to trust sources. Um, how do you think critically about geospatial data? Like, like, what are those things you're looking for when you're looking at uh, a map to say, ah, I don't, I don't, this doesn't look right. Like, how do you think through that process? Well, very good question. It, it probably will mean a bit different to others. I, I'm, I've come into this field from mm -hmm. geo, uh, geography. So I, I, I really value these tools and perspectives because it helps me and I think others to think holistically, which is what we desperately need on our planet. It's good to have your specialization, whether it's soils or population studies or hazards or energy, water, et cetera, health. It's good to have a specialization. 
But don't lose the fact that we need to think holistically about how the lithosphere is connected to the hydrosphere is connected to the anthroposphere, right, Nick, the human sphere, the, the biosphere, uh, et cetera. We need people that can think holistically so that they understand, oh, if we alter this variable over here, this is going to be affected. I mean, think of all the past kind of blunders that we've made as, as, as a global society in mm-hmm. where we didn't realize the implications of we, 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 ch- we change this in a, in a region, and then this is going to be our ramifications in health, economics, et cetera, for decades and sometimes generations to come. We need to think about that. Um, I mean, the world is full of complex choices, and it's not so black and white. It's, it, there's, there's, gray, there's gray areas. And so part of the you know, modern world of decision-making is someone's going to be impacted, uh, in positive ways, and others are going to be impacted in negative ways. How can we minimize the negative impacts? In other words, most decisions are not going to be, this is good, and if we decide this way, everything's going to be bad. Rather, it's we've got, we've got staffing, time, budgets, and, and we need to just grapple with our complex world. So that's all part of critical thinking, I think, is, 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 is understanding and being aware of the many um, sectors of our planet that could be impacted positively or negatively by our decisions with geospatial technology and spatial data. Sure, there's other things that that go into, do I assess that? For me, and how do I assess that data set, that map? For me, part of it is fitness for use. Is that data set fit for my use? It may not be fit for your use, Nick. If you're looking at fiber optic cable in a, in a, in a one square block, you need highly accurate data. You need a whole lot of layers on the built infrastructure. For me, looking at a region uh, watershed, I don't. More is not always better. This is another message, right? Do I need sub-centimeter right. spatially um, uh, spatial resolution in my imagery for a watershed study? Probably not. In fact, sometimes when we we, we have this mindset of oh, we could just grab this data uh, from a myriad of sources and then use it. Well, sometimes we're not seeing the big picture if we've got such detailed data. Now that we can handle big data sets, do mm-hmm. we always need those? So that's one thing I, I like to consider. So is the data set fit for my use and my scale and my problem that I'm trying to solve? And then another one is uh, the uh, clarity of the metadata. That's not something that's all that exciting to talk about perhaps, but um, I, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of value in – well, let's do it, Joseph. Let's oh do my a gosh! Deep dive oh, into metadata, starting now. Yeah, and, and the listeners and, turn off, <laughs> and, 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 and they hit the stop button. Instances right where you and I have had decisions, and so do our clients and our partners and others. Where, hey, this looks mm-hmm. good, but there's not much documentation on it. For example, in ArcGIS Online, even you've got a layer in there that looks pretty good, but then when you go to whoever the person that created it, and it's got the head and shoulders default image. There's nothing about that person, where they work. They may have metadata yeah. there, but there's nothing about who actually created it. That's another thing that I think is important to look at now. So I and you and others, you know, we can start not only following you know, organizations that create data, but I tend to follow and, and look at data that you know, trusted colleagues and partners have created. So, hey, you know, Jim sure. Harry's on our Living Atlas team. I always look and see what Jim has produced because I know it's going to be sound. I know it's Jim has gone through the homework <laughs> and Lisa Berry and, and, and others, Bern Sikalski. You know, so there are certain individuals that you can also look at. And this is where if you're producing data, you've got some sort of 
profile of who you are and where you work. So I would encourage people not just to populate mm-hmm. the metadata, but also a little bit about, you don't have to write your, you know, your CV in there, but a little bit about yeah. what you do and why you do it and where you work and so on so that people can use that as part of their decision-making process on whether they're going to use the data sets that you're sharing or not. I don't, I don't know if you know this, but you just revealed Esri's next billion-dollar product. You see a lot of the social media companies switching to a paid verification system. So there you go, the Esri Blue checkmark verification system. Uh, you're welcome, Esri. We'll, Interesting. We'll let you have that idea. Uh, but just make sure you're paying your royalties to Oh, I'm Dr. not getting Kersky. any royalties. Thanks, um, Nick. But <laughs> That's all right. Uh <laughs> you really should though. So, so later I want to ask you a bunch of questions about your book. Um, so the name of the book is interpreting our world. I know you have a bunch of other things you've written and things like that, but, uh, this book was really interesting. Um, it goes through a bunch of, uh, events, people, uh, things like that, that have impacted geography and geospatial. And I learned a lot from, I haven't had a chance to read the whole thing, but I've gone through a bunch of the different sections and, uh, it's definitely interesting. And I think by the end of our conversation today, I'm hoping that people will change their mind on how they view geography because it's definitely altered my mind a little bit. Um, so I'm hoping that we can get there uh, at the end. But first I wanted to, you, you mentioned ethics and I wanted to talk, touch on that because it'll go right into our conversation about your book. Um, what are what are the ethical concerns inside the GIS space, you know, um, I had a previous guest, Richard Twinstra from the city of Wilmington mentioned, uh, an old book called maps that, you know, uh, lying with maps. That's what, that's what it was called. And he mentioned how, how easy it is to kind of fudge the data to look like something that you want to look right to fit the storyline and the narrative that, you know, you want, uh, to be, um, what are the, what are the big ethical concerns, uh, in this space? And um, what are some things we might maybe just need to look out for as critical thinkers, right? As right. Critical well, thinkers. okay. I'll just start by saying of of all the books that I've had uh, the you know, the honor to either write or co-write, the one that you're talking about right now, which is called Interpreting Our World, is 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 the most for the general public book that I've written. Most of the other ones have been you know textbooks, spatial mathematics, uh, tribal GIS, aimed at at uh, you know certain certain groups of folks, but this one is really aimed at the general public to see exactly what you're saying, seeing and and saying, and that is you know first of all geography is revolutionary. It's not some boring old thing about the exports of Peru or the capital of North Carolina or you know what I mean. It's it's not the blue category in trivial pursuit. I'm going back to the 80s version and the the category in Jeopardy. Those are interesting <laughs> and the geography B. You know all those facts about uh, our world. It's important to have some facts in any discipline, right? If you're a chemist, you know about chemical compounds and isotopes and so on and so forth, right? And same with geography, environmental science, um, geosciences. It's important to have that sort of content knowledge about certain things. If I'm figuring, if I if I'm talking about hurricanes, I need to know some scale. I've got an idea of the scale, or if the earthquake impacted, unfortunately, Turkey and Syria. I I have this this mental map of where that is. I can look up more specifics, right? But so it's important to have um, content knowledge about our world. But I'm I my goal was really what you're touching on now, and I'm glad you're you're kind of seeing that is that this is a revolutionary idea. 
uh, of looking at the whole world and everything in it and try to figure out how to build this more sustainable world with, like you said, I've got tools highlighted in there, GPS, or aerial photographs. I mean, that was revolutionary for its time. GPS and mm-hmm. the sextant I've got in there, the astrolabe, uh, you know, exploration maps. Um, measuring the uh, one degree of latitude. I've got this, this story in there as well uh, back in the 1730s. So tools, people, ways of thinking, uh, innovative um, programs and initiatives that have come around over the years. It's a revolutionary thing in several ways. First of all, you, we're trying to figure out the whole world and everything in it and how everything connects. And secondly, this holistic thinking that I talked about before, that is kind of a revolutionary thing. It always has been. But I think ever more so now in our 21st century world, when there's so many specialties, so many specializations, we still need that holistic view of our planet, as we talked about earlier. So, yes, that's the whole goal of that book is to help people understand that the, the geographic way of thinking is revolutionary and it touches on other disciplines, chemistry, biology, city planning, oceanography, that geographic thought is not just limited to geography as a discipline and it needs to be in other disciplines too because all disciplines deal with the whys of where in some way you know business supply chain management economics mm-hmm. i mean the whys of where change over space and time is 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 important to every discipline really and so that's what i'm also trying to bring forth in an interesting way that's not um nothing against you know standard textbooks and i've written some of those as well but um that, that you could actually give this to a family member or a friend, and they would say, you know, that's really interesting. And I'm going to look at, you know, Zhang He from, right. from China in the 1400s sailing these huge ships with soil and plants uh, on board uh, to far-flung <laughs> regions in South Asia and even getting all the way over to uh, Somalia and Kenya. Wow, that's fascinating. So things like that to get them interested in exploration. And that's another theme of the book, actually, is that the exploration didn't end with the golden age of exploration. It actually continues now. We're, 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 we're still exploring new frontiers, mapping the mind, mapping the brain, mapping human organs. That's a frontier, right? Medical mapping, uh, mapping Mars, right? Mapping Ganymede, uh, mapping the universe. That's another frontier in mapping and, and lots of other things we could talk about. Well, uh, back to ethics, you know, like what, like if, if we look at, um, you know, I talked about the maps, you know, the, the book on lying with maps, um, and, and we, we talked a little bit about AI and this explosion of AI tools and understanding and trusting the data that, uh, underneath it, um, you know, those, those ethical concerns to, Look, we've all heard the term fake news, right? <laughs> uh, you see the news likes to use maps all the time. And um, they're very, maps look very authoritative. They look very much trustworthy. You know, if, if they're, if the visualization's done properly, if the symbology is good, you know, if it's clean, you're going to trust that map. You're going to say that's, that looks legit. Um moving forward into this kind of AI driven uh, technology focused future, you know, what are those ethical concerns in GIS that we need to, we just need to watch out for? Yes. Very good question. Um, And, 
as you're indicating, it's not just new today or this year or last year. Uh, Mark Monmonier was the author of that How to Lie with Maps book. It was required reading for me as a undergraduate, actually, and uh, for many many uh, Enviro mm-hmm. Geo colleagues, it's still essential reading because it and, and a couple of other books as well talk about this whole idea of the map is not an impartial. Um, view of the world. It has it's laden with meaning, as all reports and visualizations are. They they reflect and shape opinion. They reflect the opinion and the views of the person making it. And so, you know, with all science, there's an increased recognition that it's all societal in context. Uh, it is not what we were sort of led right. to believe years ago where you are an impartial researcher. You're, you're never in a totally impartial researcher. There are things you can do to make it as little biased as possible, but maps have this air of authenticity, right, Nick? They tend to be believed as you're indicating. They, I think mm-hmm. in part because they were created by these authoritative science and mapping agencies for years, Rand McNally, you know, U.S. Geological Survey, the Ordnance Survey of the U.K., uh, the United Nations Environment Program, the WHO. I mean, these are all sort of authoritative agencies, not perfect. They're all composed of people and imperfect technologies and so on and so forth. So they've always been mm-hmm. imperfect representations of reality, maps. They are very useful, imperfect representations of reality, but they are imperfect just the same. I mean, we're trying to understand, again, our whole world and everything in it with these maps. So to your point, uh, it's not it's – not, a brand new thing, but I think there's an increased recognition that we need to have a critical eye on mapped and mapped data of all kinds, especially because nowadays there's a blurring between maps and visualizations, infographics. I mean, our world is saturated, our media is saturated mm-hmm. by visualizations. And it's 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 a good thing, I think, in large part because anybody can create maps and visualizations uh, with certain tools. And um Hey, I want to map all of the pizza deliveries in New York City over the last six months. Cool. I've got a big data set. I can map all that. Uh, what kind of patterns do we see? Uh, some of these are very interesting. Right. And um, I think most maps are interesting in some ways. But to your point, um, depending on what your goal is, do you trust it? So, for example, there's a, a series of maps that are kind of intended to be sort of click clickbait, you know, on, on the online, you know, that, that generate clicks. Um, mm-hmm. the favorite foods in every state. Okay, really? How many people did they survey for that map, right, Nick? Hey, I'm I'm making a map on the right, favorite foods right. in every state, and I've got a a, a my office mate. Uh, what's your favorite food? Where are you from? I'll put that on the map. I mean, they're very low on the end value and the number of people surveyed. And you know, I'm not trying to be Mr. Johnny Raincloud here. I don't I don't you know say that we shouldn't have any of those kind of fun maps. They are kind of fun, some of them. And uh, but but people even need to have a critical eye on that because the more that those maps get populated, I think the the more that people are are maybe not asking questions about other maps that are more scientific maybe or on a really serious problem, not favorite mm-hmm. foods in every state. So even those things, I think we can use as teachable moments to help people understand. Okay, it's kind of interesting, uh, but what if the end value of that favorite foods in every state was basically one person in every state? <laughs> you know, can you trust it? Should you trust it? Right. Okay. Maybe, maybe I don't need to trust it. Maybe I just want to look at it for, for interest. And that's as far as I'm going to go with it. I'm not going to base any sort of scientific study on, Oh, okay. It's enchiladas here in Colorado. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to 
for another purpose, I'm going to have mm-hmm. a bit of a more rigorous set of criteria as to whether I'm actually going to use that map or data layer in my in my analysis. Cool. So, uh, so I do want to start asking you some questions uh, that I actually pulled from your book, and these are these are really awesome. I think if you're listening, you're going to enjoy this conversation because um, there's there's so many great stories in here. There's so many great stories from uh, things that have happened that all impact geography. So I was hoping maybe we could we could start with the first guy. And I can't. I I sent you notes, but I can't say this name. I Eratosthenes. Eratosthenes. <laughs> Anyways, I so I, I briefly skimmed the, the that section, and um, my production assistant uh, was telling me how how cool of a story this was. And my first question was, you know, how did he do it? How how did he do what he did? So long ago, and maybe you could tell. Sure. People who well, Eratosthenes, Eratosthenes was the was. librarian at the famous, world-class Alexandria Library in Egypt, and heard reports of a certain time of year, the summer solstice. The sun got to the bottom of a well at Syene, Egypt, which is in the south- southern part of Egypt. And at the same day, Eratosthenes did a a measurement that the water well in Alexandria, which is some hundreds of kilometers or hundreds of miles north of Syene, the sun did not reach to the center of the well. It was at an an angle. So it didn't reach to the bottom of the well. So figured out, okay, we've got to be on a sphere. And that arc of the sphere between Alexandria and Syene, I'm going to calculate that uh, on the – on the sphere, and then I'm also going to measure it uh, across land, and then if I do that, I'll be able to figure out how, how how big the Earth is based on its circumference. So you can imagine, you know, camels going south from Alexandria and trying to figure out the distance from Alexandria to Syene. But all that being said, though, calculated the Earth it, to single digits of precision off only one or two percent off of its actual forty thousand kilometer circumference. So it's pretty remarkable. And, you know, some argue that, yeah, you know, there were a couple of errors that kind of balanced each other out in Eratosthenes' uh, calculations. But even mm-hmm. so, if that number had been paid attention to rather than being sort of reduced by Ptolemy and others in the Middle Ages, then, for example, Columbus would have realized that's a long way to Asia from Spain. And I, there's no way I'm going to be able to get there by going, <laughs> right. you know, but right. – <laughs> thought that the wor- world as many people did was a lot smaller than it is but again they didn't they didn't they weren't using Eratosthenes numbers but it is fascinating not just the the measurement and the you know the the difficulty of trekking across the sands and the calculations but just the having the having the 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 bigger picture in mind let's think deeply about our world and how big it is and you know it's, it's got to be a sphere otherwise it wouldn't have an angle at one well and be a straight down at, an, at another well so just you know helping people to realize maybe there's some preconceived notions about our world that are completely false now that we need to maybe think thoughtfully about my old supervisor at the census bureau for example would say nick hey joseph from time to time you kind of need to sit back in your chair or on your lean back in your stand up desk i guess nowadays and and think deeply about you know what problems are you trying to solve what things in our world are are needing to be addressed and not get so into the day to day and there's also the stephen covey workplace classes that probably many of your listeners have taken i took one of them that talked about spend time in the q2 space the quadrant urgent and 
important being the axes and the Q2 space is important, but it's not urgent. Mm -hmm. Nobody's breathing down your neck saying, you need to think deeply about this, but they're important. So I'm trying to, as I go forward in my career, I encourage your listeners to think about this too. Spend time in what Kobe talks about in this Q2 space. They're important problems to think about and grapple with, but they're not necessarily urgent. So many times the urgent it, it's, it supersedes everything else, right? Your boss, mm-hmm. your supervisor, your stakeholders, whoever you're dealing with are saying, you need to do this now. And I get it. You know, I'm a realist. You need to pay attention to those things, but wall off some time where you think about these big, which I think is what Eratosthenes must've been doing, you know, one day in the, in the, in the library saying, what, what's the shape of the earth and how can I calculate it? And so on. <laughs> I just I think that's insane to for for this person to be able to figure that out, you know, um, way yeah, back then, uh, you know, just twenty two hundred years like you ago, said, trekking yes. with camels, like this is insane. Yeah, I mean, this is this is crazy. I guess the modern day version would be, um, you know, us understanding the size of our observable universe. I mean, I guess this is the modern day modern day problem, and hopefully, the James Webb Space Telescope will help us figure that all out. Um, something else. You know, really on that note, another paradigm shifting uh, moment, Nick, was right stuff. around 100 years ago. It was between 1920 and 1924 when the Andromeda galaxy was realized to be a galaxy. And because it, up until then, you know, people have been observing it. You can see it with the naked eye right. in certain places and certain light conditions. But it was mm-hmm. thought to be sort of a, a gas nebula that rotated around the Milky Way. And then when it was realized, that is a whole different galaxy, our size, our conception of the universe multiplied numerous fold. Oh my gosh, that's a galaxy. And maybe this other thing is a galaxy also. And so it was no longer just the Milky Way, which was big enough right then, but then it was, uh, uh, no, wait a minute. Yep. So to your point, yes, we are. uh, That's the, the, the fascinating thing that we're sort of uncovering here is that there's always new discoveries to be made and thinking you know, deeply about problems to solve helps us to get there. All right. Very cool. The next, the next person in your book who I wanted to talk about was Anaximander. I was hoping you could talk about who Anaximander was and in it. Am I even saying that right? I don't even know. A-N-A-X-I-M-A-N-D-E-R. Yes. Anaximander. Yeah. A Greek, another one of those uh, Greek philosophers. And, and, you know, what, what I tried to do in the book also is not just talk about the ancient Greeks and Romans. I mean, sure, they were, they were some, you know, uh, again, you know, thinking about the greater societal um, thing that were going on, you know, a lot of, through much of human history, right, people have just been trying to survive. And so one of the, one of the things I'm keen on is let's build some communities, some societies where people have the ability to not just worry about where's the next meal going to come from, but think about some of these other things going on. And uh, so Anaximander, like some of uh, you know his contemporaries, and this was a little bit before uh, Eratosthenes, 600, 500 BC-ish, um, but I think what's amazing about Anaximander was one of the earliest proponents of science that, that we can we can understand things mm-hmm. by observing, which is a big deal back then. You know, now it's kind of taken for granted. Oh, if we want to learn about plants or maps or you know right. hazards, we're going to study phenomena. But back then, you know, a lot of people were like, uh, "It's just what I think about things. I'm not going to observe. I'm just going to be thoughtful." Or I've got superstitions or suspicions about things, so I'm, I'm largely driven by maybe emotions 
or just thinking about it. Anaximander was all about, let's go out and observe plants, animals, etc. Um, and so I think that's, to me, that was one of the, the big advancements uh, for that particular uh, person. Absolutely. And, you know, another another interesting thing about a lot of those folks, and, and we've got some in our own modern times, but, uh, you know, von Humboldt in the 19th century is another person I have in there, um, but or at least touch on. And that is a lot of these people were considered to be there's a there's a term called polymath, which multiple learned. So they they mm-hmm. actually had fingers in lots of different disciplines. Right. Um they knew plants, they knew animals, they knew landforms, right. they understood river systems. And that to me is it, – it's, it's the, the challenge and the benefits of geography. Again, not advocating that everybody listening to this become a geographer, but the geographic perspective is really a polymath kind of perspective. It really is the – let's try to understand various spheres. Well, we talked about the ecosphere, mm-hmm. the lithosphere, the hydrosphere, and then systems the, and cycles – uh, the hydrologic cycle, the the carbon cycle. I mean, there's a big kind of structures in in our world, and try to understand those. So, to me, we need those kind of polymaths, you know, in our day. And we could point to some examples, um, but you know, nothing against specialization. Once again, but that's one of the reasons why I like you know talking about Anaximander and 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 some other um, uh, people. I mean, you know, there were some things that they 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 thought were core concepts. Yeah. Like I, I think Anaximander was one of the uh, people, as as others of of his time were talking about. Their elements: uh, air, earth, water, fire. I mean, fire is not not a thing, right? It's a it's right. the we know it's a result of combustion <laughs> and so on and so forth. But but uh, you know, so there were some things that we've adjusted over time. But I just love the whole, you know, being inquisitive about many, many aspects of our world and then try to understand those based on observations, which, again, for that time, it was pretty amazing. Yeah, I think it's I think it's really neat. Like you talked about um, these these polymaths and you do hear that. You definitely hear that term more in history. Uh, but it's really I think anybody that's kind of intelligent and thinks through things uh is curious, right? You have that curiosity and you said, you know, if you might master one subject, but, um, that curiosity it, it, will bring yep. you into and the, other the things. The last thing about an Aximander, uh, uh, I know we need to sum up and, and so on, but I believe he was the first docu- person documented to, to conceive of the earth as not s- supported by some sort of arm of a, of a, of a Greek God uh, or a structure it's actually f- <laughs> free floating. I mean, I think he had this notion of the, of the earth as a disc, which is obviously mm-hmm. not really correct, but, and floating on maybe like a water, watery sort of substance, as I recall. But, you know, the idea that the earth was suspended in space, that it was, it was in space that, right. Okay. Maybe he didn't know that we okay, talked about water instead of, you know, the space as we know it now, but still the idea that it wasn't held by like Apollo's wrist, right. you know, or something is really in, an interesting concept, <laughs> which much have been kind of mind blowing when he was in conversation with, you know, maybe neighbors. Are you nuts? How can it be suspended? What's it's gotta be supported. <laughs> Everything we see around us is supported by a tree trunk, you know, a, a, yeah, it, it right. rocks. Of course, my natural my natural ne- next question would be, well, what's go. supporting yeah, Apollo, yeah. right? <laughs> <laughs> what's supporting him? Anyway, fascinating uh, stuff. 
and and now we now we know better. We'll appreciate that. Um, and then the next one I had I had listed here because uh, I think I think it's something interesting to think about these days is is Vesuvius, as in the volcano in Italy, uh, as in as in the volcano in Italy. Uh, I was wondering if you could tell maybe just a brief version of the you know what happened well, with Vesuvius. I think there were a couple things. First, the um, the idea that there are there are hazards on our planet and and the realization that if we're going to build a town and we're going to live at the base of something that's hazardous maybe that's not such a good idea so kind of thinking about where should human habitation be i mean some of these lessons take a long time to gel right i mean we're still living in lots of hazardous zones in our planet and we've got 8 billion of us that we have to figure out where we're going to mm-hmm. house everybody so we're going to be living in hazardous zones but i think that kind of um horrible, you know, destruction from a live living example of the earth as a dynamic planet made people realize that this is not a static thing. So it, it really fostered a lot of scientific and geographic thought. Another, um, another interesting part about that was that people could observe, you know, kind of touching on what we talked about before with Eratosthenes being able to observe and, 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 and Aximander, um, because there were studies done during, before, and after the eruption, that uh, what are these things coming out of the earth? And therefore, what what is underneath us? And that sort of thing. Another interesting and kind of tragic thing of, as well um, that I've got in the book is um, that Pliny uh, was observing and got so interested in it. And I know we're all really passionate about it. He was so interested and passionate that he actually died in at the base of the volcano as a, a probably a pyroclastic a piece mm-hmm. of projectile landed on his head or something like that. So, and also the noxious gases and so on, but got so fascinated, but wanted to be right up there where the action was. And, you know, that was the last observation that he made. Uh, but uh, it's still, you know, it, it interesting, it's an interesting story. Um, uh, I think he was uh, studying it, but also, you know, on a humanitarian note, I think, one of the stories was that he actually was trying to rescue a friend and his family uh, from the eruption. I think that was part of it. It was, you know, you think about people going into harm's way nowadays, you know, mm. the rescue workers and stuff. You really, it kind of goes back to probably before him, but Pliny was, I think, the first person to not only just studying it, but actually went back into the really hazardous area to, to rescue some people, as I recall. Um, I'm not sure I put that in the book or not, but that was at least from several sources, again, being critical of the data, but being from several sources, it was, he actually went into the really hazardous area to rescue some people. So, um, you know, it's kind of a touching, yep, uh, so, part of it. So the, I think the, the reason I, I pointed this one out was to ask this question. Are there any current Mount Vesuviuses in our world that we really need to be paying attention to uh, I was I was recently oh uh, fascinating in mm-hmm. went there on, on a vacation over the summer, and Iceland's fantastic. It's absolutely one of the most beautiful countries in the world. And uh, the first night that we were there, we were staying on the ninth floor of a hotel, and in the middle of the night, uh, I could feel shaking. <clears throat> I'm from Florida. I grew up in Florida. I don't know what this is, <laughs> right? And my but my thought was, well, I know they have volcanoes here. This this must be an earthquake, right? There must be an earthquake. Um, 
find out the next day that yes, in fact, there was a volcanic eruption and you know the, the earthquake was a side effect from, from that eruption. And people just flocked to this eruption. And I remember thinking, what if it's Mount Vesuvius? You know, what is the what if the thing they're everybody's flocking to? And thousands of people went out there to take their drone videos and pictures and research and the news was out there. And my thought was, what if what if this thing's actually worse than <laughs> than what people suspect? You know, did we learn anything from Mount Vesuvius? And and is there a Mount Vesuvius lurking around our corner today? Oh gracious. We could have a whole uh, another block on this, but um yeah, Iceland, fascinating, right on the plate boundary. Um, and uh, Simon Winchester, whom I regard very highly, highly as an author, he has one of his book is actually uh, books is he goes to the Mid Atlantic Ridge, and then he ends the book in San Francisco. So it's all about hazards and hazards resilience. That's a fascinating book. I have to look up and see that what what that one was. Maybe you could put it in the um, resources to accompany this. But that I love that book. But mm-hmm. yes. Um, well, gosh, there are all kinds of reports, right, about what happens if Yellowstone National Park, you know, is our next Krakatoa yeah. um, or Mount Vesuvius <laughs> or something like that, where you've got this massive amount of uh, uh, activity in the middle of the plate. Well, gosh, I, maybe we won't be worried about podcasts if that happens, right, Nick? <laughs> but um, sure, I think <laughs> – right. There are, we are getting smarter. It's sometimes agonizingly slow how decisions and plans uh, come from investigation. But I mean, think of Gilbert White, who was a researcher, geography professor, mid 20th century, and would tell the Army Corps of Engineers, hey, these levees that we're building, for example, on the Mississippi River, that's only a feel good measure. That's just temporary. Eventually, the river's going to decide to do what it wants to do. And right. we can build in the floodplains, but it's not wise. Let's use a different kind of land use for floodplains. Uh, you know, Gilbert White was kind of poo-pooed by you know some some decision makers, and but you know, years later now, people are starting to realize, hey, you know, maybe some of these things that we talked about are smart. I mean, John Wesley Powell, right? The whole idea of the West being arid, and we need to be maybe having communities around watersheds and we need to water manage the watersheds wisely. Um, that's another of many examples we could talk about where, uh, no, we're going to be able to, we're going to be able to, you know, cultivate the West and we're going to be able to bring rain in because if we plant things, rain will come. And, you know, the old dust bowl idea there. So I think, <laughs> you know, over time we're, we're getting smarter and we're making smarter decisions. But again, sometimes it's agonizingly slow, but that's again, why we need the geospatial technology community and the geography thinkers of our day. We, we absolutely cannot just say, well, this is a nice thing to embrace in our society, right, Nick? We, we absolutely need these tools and these people making smarter decisions to build this better world. I don't see it as a, as a nice thing, thing to do. And it's a great career option for people for sure. But it's also critical that we do this for our planet. Absolutely. For all the reasons you're talking about hazards and water and energy, all the UN SDGs, right? They're all spatial in nature and they can be they can be grappled with and understood and solved with the application of geospatial technologies and spatial thinking. So I'm right with you hundred percent on that. Well, I think I think the the Mount Vesuvius question kind of leads into the next one. Um Maybe if you think about it a little bit, uh, at least from the way I understood this, 
Could you maybe talk about Walter Christaller and, and central place well, theory? Well, certainly. Uh, the idea there was that studying this sort of level playing field, the plains of Deutschland, the plains of Germany, which is what, what Christaller's uh, sort of uh, uh, laboratory, if you will. And notice that there are certain towns that evolved into bigger towns and they're, they're they're networked. They're they're surrounded by smaller towns with a different trade area. You know those kinds of ideas uh, still have their place. In fact, they're probably even more important now than ever before. When you think about where does a chain store decide to put like a convenience store like Casey's in Central USA or Alsup's mm-hmm. down in West Texas and New Mexico or or uh, a Pilot, you know, kind of a national or Seven Eleven or Circle K, you know, national chains. Where do they decide to put these? How many do they decide? Now for years. There was a sort of a unwritten tenant, but if you were five thousand people in Texas, five thousand people in a town, you got a Dairy Queen. So the Dairy Queen, you know, HQ. Okay, that's that's the <laughs> that's the criteria up over which that is a viable market for us. So that those ideas from the you know the nineteenth century for the central place theory have a lot of implication in the business decision making. Uh, uh, sectors of society and beyond business too, in other sectors of society, um, as well that we could we could chat about. But that whole high, you know sort of network communities and hierarchy of things, yeah, it has a lot of applicability. And and actually, some of those things make their way into geospatial technology tools that we actually use, buffer overlay, you know, networking tools and other things. It's really interesting to see mm-hmm. how how some of those ideas are actually in our modern uh, GIS toolkit. So uh, just just so I understand, so the idea behind central place theory is that things tend to develop around a centralized area and network from there, and it's not exactly you know, they're not just sporadic. It's there's there there's a central location where things develop, and then it goes from there. Um, that certainly makes sense if you look at all. And of there's our a, major it's a complex cities, world, right? so it's, it's not a perfect. Uh, I mean, he used Chris Dollar used okay plains of Germany for part mm-hmm. of his study area, for most of his study area. And when you look at places that are like that around the world, there's not that many of them. Like they're usually influenced by mountain ranges or, you know, climatic controls or some other, you know, some other political boundaries. I mean, there's all kinds of things that kind of interfere with that model. But, um, you know, take a look at, you know, some of the, t- the, the layouts of towns, especially like Nebraska, Kansas, you know, where you sort of have the closest to a level playing field that you could without the influence of a lot of physical barriers or or political mm-hmm. boundary uh, issues, and you'll see that yeah, okay, there's there's a North Platte, Nebraska, and there's not another North Platte of its size around for a certain distance, and in between there, there's there's certain other towns. Now, of course, a lot of that was influenced uh, in our own country in the Midwest by the v- development of railroads and railroad towns. So that's another influence on the landscape that we could talk about. But yeah, it's fascinating. It really is. I, I wonder with you know remote work these days uh, if there's if there's going to be another theory that could uh, circumvent central place theory based on the internet you know is people still want to be near the grocery store right they still want to be near uh, services doctors dental dentists etc um, but just it, I'd be curious to know if there's another theory out there that exists that could replace uh, the idea of this central centralized based growth, because look, <clears throat> it's expensive to live in San Francisco. It's ex- it's expensive to live in 
Boston, New York City, Miami. And why? Why bother? You could you could go you could work from the plains of Oklahoma, like you talked about, uh, if you really like like it there. I do. I love the Great Plains, um, but yes, there are there's job, a lot so. of societal um, <laughs> changes where, like you're touching on, what's it going to mean for small towns? For example, this is all ge- this is all geographic questions. If you can work from anywhere. Will there be a resurgence mm-hmm. in people living in the panhandle of Nebraska for cost reasons, because of lifestyle, they want to be in a smaller town, you know, that mm-hmm. type of thing. And there has been, you know, some evidence in the census reports on, you know, the resurgence of some of these smaller and mid-sized communities. There's other factors that pull people away from such places. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's, again, touching on our dynamic uh, planet for sure. Um, very good. Okay, the next one I have here is, Alfred yep, Wegener. Uh-huh. I think I said that right. Right. This is a ger- this is a German name. I was, I was hoping you could tell me the story. Of well, Wegener was one of those folks that um, was ahead of his time or her time, you know. And um, there's other examples in the book on on those kinds of folks. I had the idea of okay, you and I looking at a map, for example. You know, it looks like. A jigsaw puzzle with the the sort of the the bulge of South America could kind of like fit into the the gap the the bite or the the hollow part of Africa if they were joined. It looks like they the coastlines could almost fit. And then looking further into it, hey, there's some mountain ranges that have the same kind of sediments on either side of the Atlantic. And ditto for uh, the Appalachians and some uh, mountain ranges in uh, Ireland and in uh, Western Europe. So had this idea based on that and many other uh, things going on. Uh, many other observations that we have this thing called plate tectonics. In his time, it was called continental drift. The, the, the continents are drifting on a other layer somehow. And because it was the somehow that was unknown, Wegener's theory was sort of, again, poo-pooed by the establishment saying, there's no, there's no physical way that those continents could be floating on something else like the like the mantle there's we don't understand how that could happen so therefore we're going to discount your theory so again it was one of those uh, things where when the mechanism of you were touching on iceland you know the whole idea of crust being formed at those mid-ocean ridges and then being subducted on the continental margins in the subduction zones in those um, plate boundaries the mechanism was discovered for convection in the mantle and and for crust to be created and then destroyed in other places. So, okay, that was the mechanism that n- enabled continental drift to become plate tectonics. So in the end, uh, Wegener was vindicated. I don't believe it was during his lifetime, however, sadly, you know, just like a lot of forward thinkers, they didn't actually uh, uh, realize how, mm-hmm. how much influence they were going to have until after they had uh, passed away. But I, I love that because it was, okay, thinking, looking at maps, taking measurements, coming up with a theory, and hey, stick to your principles, even if the community doesn't agree with you. That's another, I think, good message for us, is that if you truly believe in something strongly um, and and you've got some evidence there, uh, don't let people dissuade you from from your good ideas. I'm starting to sense a pattern of, you know, all these, all these people uh, with these historic discoveries uh, and their interactions with the established um, ideology, right? It seems like they're always they always run against the obvious. It's like, what the Earth is? Look, the land isn't moving. Get out of here. This is you're crazy, right? Can you imagine going to someone with this idea? 
you know, whenever this was uh, in history and saying, hey, you know, I think I think the, the, the land we're standing on used to be, you know, 100 million years ago was over there. And um, I just think it's I think it's such a great lesson in in history that and I try to think about this today, like who are those who are those people with these ideas now that are kind of laughed out of the room? Right. Those ideas. Those are the ones, right? Those are the ones that that end up sticking around and being consequential. So if we look at uh, the current state of geography, GIS, and all that's going on, uh, what are what are you hopeful about uh, in this field? Well, thanks, Nick. I'm 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 hopeful about a lot of things. Actually, I'm I'm an optimist, and I truly believe that. We've got good tools. We've got good data that we've talked about. We've got great thinkers, far-reaching, visionary, energetic thinkers. And so I'm very hopeful that we can solve these problems. We can solve them. Let me think about 1854, Jon Snow, cholera, when it was demonstrated through Mm -hmm. maps, right, that Water is the source of the cholera pathogen, even if we can't see it in a microscope for another 20 years, which I think was the timing there. We couldn't see it in a microscope. They just had to say, okay, based on the map evidence, cholera is a waterborne illness, disease. Um, Oh, then we've got to figure out how to clean up the water in millions of cities around the world, and there's millions of people in those cities. Okay, water is still an issue in our planet, right? serious issue. There's a billion people without safe and accessible drinking water. So it's still an issue. But for many people, that issue has been largely solved. And and again, it must have seemed like a daunting task. Now I just encourage the listener to think about, you know, what are the daunting tasks of our 21st century world? Daunting problems that we think there's no way we're going to be able to get a, a handle on this. I'm actually confident that we we will get a handle on this. Water, energy, health, hazards, and other issues. We've got to be smart about this, but I think we do have, again, good people, tools, and data to do so. So I'm actually hopeful about us being able to solve problems, in part because some of the things we've talked about, geotechnology and the cloud and so on. I'm also hopeful because we have a rise of geo-awareness, geo-awareness. People are aware that, hey, we've got to we got to figure out these water issues, these hazards issues, these land use issues. We've got to, mm-hmm. there's an awareness now. Was in, in the past, it was sort of you and I and our colleagues, right, talking about these sorts of things. And now the general public is at least aware of them. They're not always aware that we have this thing called geotechnologies and geography as a discipline and other things that we can help, that can help solve those problems. But at least they're aware that they're serious and they increasingly affect our everyday lives and we need to, we need to solve them. Well, very cool. One of the things I really like about you is you're definitely passionate about geography, passionate about GIS. Uh, you're very en- energetic. I definitely um, think people should check out your bur- your book, Interpreting Our World, uh, amongst a lot of your other work. Check them out on Google Google Scholar as well. Look up Dr. Joseph Kursky. Um, before before we we send off though, what what keeps you up at night? Well, I don't want to end on a on a sad note, but since you asked. Um... The slow pace of change still in education and society. So, okay, I'm in Colorado, rapidly growing area. I think, where's the water going to come from for everybody that wants to move here? And it's a great place. I, I moved here when I was a kid. I love it here. 
but this and other places, Arizona, right? Lots of areas around the world. Um, people want to move to, but is there enough natural resources for those people? And how are we going to figure out how we can sustain that population, the population growth ahead of us going forward? So sometimes I wish we were, um, actually oftentimes, let's think about the where we want to be in 10, 20 that's not even very long from now, right? A couple generations mm-hmm. from now and beyond. How are we going to get there? Let's plan now so that we can get there. You know, the, the, the whole saying about, you know, when's the best time to plant a tree? 20 years ago, uh, you know, so it's let's think right, right, right. forward and not just in terms of like fiscal years or uh, this specific problem, but let's, let's, let's plant the seeds now so that in generations to come, our kids, grandkids, et cetera, they're kind of reaping the benefits of, of wise planning. So that's, that's a bit of what concerns me is still the sort of short-term solutions and also the lack of just awareness of, okay, this is one planet. When I see Nick, for example, people littering, right? it's like, yeah, this is the this is all we have. What goes through their mind? They're not bad people. They they've never had an environmental science class. They've never had a geography class, and we could talk about why that is. Or they're just not connecting their actions to the bigger planet. So right. that kind of stuff concerns me. That we need to build awareness, mm-hmm. uh, and then go from there. Make smarter decisions. Well, I'm not going to let you end on a on a sour note. So I'll, I'll ask you one one more question, which is. Um, you know, what, what's maybe a hopeful message you have for, um, the geo, the geographic community as a whole, like what's, what, what would be your, your message to them for people that either want to get ahead in their careers, be successful, or just, they really love this stuff. Well, I would say, um, first reminding folks what we just talked about with uh, John Snow and the cholera epidemic of 1854 is a good example of, yes, we see a problem, we're going to solve it, and we're going to, people are going to be healthier and thriving. So think about that. But also I would say, you know, for people going forward in their journey, I would say be curious about the world, first and foremost. Ask questions. Ask questions that your professor is not even asking you. And when you're in the workplace, ask questions that your supervisor is not even asking you. Those are kind. Those are the kind of employees that your organization, Nick, my organization, others listening to this, they really value. They, they value people that can, can, can ask those questions that, again, they may not be uh, ask, asked uh, in their uh, day-to-day work, but they're seeing this is a problem and we need to fix it, or that's an issue that we need to fix that. So uh, mm-hmm. I encourage people to ask good questions, be curious about the world, and also care about the world. The caring is really all about what we're talking about today, the caring of people and places and environments. Uh, and that's going to drive us forward into a better future. Well, appreciate it so much. Thank you, uh, Dr. Joseph Kursky, for being here. Um, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, make sure you leave a five-star review. Um, if you're on YouTube, hit the subscribe button. It's too easy. It's free. Uh, make sure you share this podcast with your friends. We're going to leave all the links to things we talked about in the description. It'll also be on the website. And uh, make sure you check all those things out. Thank you, Nick. So this is, yeah, great, great to have you. Uh, great conversation. Uh, my name's Nick, and this is the NDS Show.